Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. There's some very powerful and interesting thoughts just in that short passage. But the word offenses is not a good translation. King James men chose that, but it really doesn't hit the point well. But later translations decided it was better translated stumbling block. Now that's good. We should focus on that. So Jesus says to his disciples, first of all, it's inevitable that we will have stumbling blocks. This is an important point for us to grasp today. Sometimes I think we have idealistic concepts of what it means to be a Christian. People have been sidetracked because Their new Christian walk didn't live up to what they thought it should be. They thought when they got saved, they weren't going to have as many problems as they used to have. How many of you can testify that's not necessarily so? Wouldn't it be nice if you got saved and you were no longer in debt? And you no longer ever got sick? And all of your complications just healed themselves because you got saved. But it's not not the way it happens. Neither, whenever you get saved, will you be free from temptations or from stumbling blocks. As a matter of fact, Jesus very clearly said, it is inevitable in life you're going to meet stumbling blocks. Prepare your life accordingly. But that was not the main message in this section of this passage. Probably the more important of the two points made here is don't you be a stumbling block to somebody else. As a matter of fact, his example here is very graphic. He pronounces a woe on that person through whom stumbling blocks should come. It would be better if a millstone were hung around that person's neck and thrown into the sea than that they would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, let's keep it in context. When he said one of these little ones, he wasn't talking about little children, but he wasn't excluding them. He was talking about those people who were following him, his disciples. But more pointedly, the spiritually young. And he's telling his mature disciples to be very careful not to cause one of the less mature disciples to stumble and fall. It would be so bad 
if you would do that, you would prefer to be drowned in the sea with a millstone pulling you to the bottom. That doesn't sound very enticing to me. But I really have to look at my life, my words, to have peace of mind that what I'm doing, what I'm saying, is not going to cause somebody else to stumble. I have to be very, very cautious about that. And I was sharing this with my wife yesterday, and her very first concern was, well, what about people who just take offense to everything you do? Well, we're not talking about those people. We know that there's some people that are never happy with you, and you will not be held accountable for that. But we are held accountable for our actions that truly do offend a Christian less mature than you, less capable of handling maybe something that you handle very easily and very well. Jesus said that's what you have to be concerned about. It seems like the rules of Christianity are being modified today from what they were when I was growing up. We have a younger generation that is coming in, uh, not all of them, but coming along with this younger generation, there is also coming a changing of the values and the rules of Christianity. We who are watching some of these things being compromised, we're shocked. What are we going to do? We have grown up in a culture, a society that has, here in the United States, typically been an abstinence people, a teetotaling Christian movement. And whereas parts of the world never did participate in that. While we were taking a stance uh, against alcohol, there were parts of... of uh, mainly uh, in Europe, uh, Asia, places where that was they had no qualms about that. But we did. And as our culture changed and alcohol became the number one abused drug in our country, it's a problem for us. I can't speak for any European nations. I don't live there. But I can tell you if you're the United States of America, it's a problem for us. And because it's a cultural problem, it's a social problem, the church has typically, traditionally said, that's not what we choose to do. We don't want to be a part of that problem. We don't want to open that door. So we have been what we would call ourselves. Typically, not just Assemblies of God, but most mainline denominations have typically been abstainers. We felt that was a better choice than leaving that door open. But we have a new generation that coming, coming along that... Uh, by and large, they're ignoring that rule. It doesn't matter to them. And as my wife and I, again, were talking about this and wondering why this is happening, one of my responses to her was, I said, uh, it doesn't seem as though they're nearest concerned about how their life is going to impact somebody else. As they are, just how does it impact me? I can do this and I'm fine. I love God. What's the big deal? But I think when we begin to lose our sensitivity 
for how this impacts somebody else's life, we get dangerously close to Jesus saying, you be careful that you don't cause somebody else to stumble. Now, there is a principle in God's word that says, Paul says, all things are permissible. All things are lawful. But he said, not everything is beneficial. Therefore, because it's not necessary, because it's not beneficial, there are some things that Paul said that he would refuse to do. And I see today an argument going on, a debate going on, that says, I have Christian liberties. There's enough grace of God that God doesn't care what I do. I can do whatever I want. I don't want some old holiness crowd taking my Christian liberties away from me. But what we've got to go back to that has carried generations before you is, yes, but what about other people that you may influence? Does that matter to you? And you have to be honest enough to answer that question. Yes, it does matter, or no, it doesn't matter. For me, it matters deeply, especially starting at those closest to me. It matters deeply to me about my boys that I raised. Now they're adults. It matters deeply to me about my grandchildren and what things that maybe, maybe I could do if I were not attached to any society, to any community, it's just me and God, and it wouldn't make any difference, now become an issue for me because I've got people following me that for them it may become a problem. Therefore, I will live a life of self-sacrifice, not necessarily taking advantage of every Christian liberty that I may have, but I will choose to sacrifice that just to set a more conservative example for those who are following me. I enjoy doing that. I enjoy not pushing on the boundaries. Now, when I was just a young boy, probably three or four years old, maybe five years old, we had a little mixed-breed puppy that we called Spanky. Part Pomeranian, part Terrier, and the little dog's tail curled up two or three times and rested on its back. It was just the cutest little thing and smart as a whip. And our family moved in town because my dad at that time wanted to buy a three-story, a three-story house and turn it into apartments and maybe start early in life on making some investments. So we moved out of our new home we had just built uh, for $14,500. And into this apartment, this, this three-story house that we turned into apartments. And... Now we're in a new neighborhood, a busier street, just three blocks off of the main drag that goes through town. And we're out playing in the street, and our dog is playing in the street. And we did this day by day because in those days, in the early 1960s, traffic wasn't that heavy. It was just, it was just a busier street than the residence that we lived, residential area we lived at before. The dog got used to playing in the street. Now, every dog I've ever had, I could set its boundaries. 
I could teach it don't leave the yard. And for the most part, the dog understood that. Once in a while, you know, they, how animals are, they're not perfect. They, they might try and stray a little bit. But for the most part, the dog learned the boundaries and stayed there and could even run and charge another dog but stop right at the boundary. You ever had a dog you could do that with? They, they, they can be very obedient. Cats have rule of the whole town. They go wherever they want and come back when they want. Dogs, though, so the dog strayed into the street, and I think you're way ahead of my story, got hit, and we lost our, our little dog. And as, as a little four- or five-year-old boy, it just crushed me. And my mother explained to me, well, it's because you had not set the boundaries. We had not, she wasn't trying to put guilt trip on me, we had not set the boundaries for the dog. That was free range. And it shouldn't have been. And you know, in the same way we as Christians can venture out where it's dangerous, not maybe as much for the mature as it is for the less mature, but if somebody gets hurt because we took our liberties that we didn't have to take, we just wanted to. We was more concerned about, I can do what I want to do and nobody can tell me no, than we were concerned about, what if somebody else does what I do? How many of you as a parent at any time have done something that you warned your children before you ever done it, don't you ever try this? You know, you can probably come up with some pretty good stories, but that's what we're talking about. Wouldn't it have been wiser for you never to have tried it? Than to do that and risk your child trying to do the same thing? Don't cause others to stumble. The second thing uh, that I see in this cluster of scriptures that we're already in the process of reading, point number two is beware of the stumbling block of unforgiveness. And that comes in the third verse where Jesus said, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and he returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, unforgiveness can certainly cause a person to fall. That can be a stumbling block, a major stumbling block. It can corrode your relationship with God. It can wreck your salvation. I remember years ago, I was doing a membership class. And I had a young convert in my class. We studied 39, I think it was 39 different uh, fundamental basic points of being a new Christian. And one of those points was understanding the concept of forgiveness. So we spent the whole class on just the issue of forgiveness. And I remember very clearly that this young man, he struggled with that. He said, I, I, can't, I can't get my brain around that. And he began to share how he had problems with his father. And the things that his father had done separated that relationship. And to this young man, it was so bad that he says, I can't forgive him. Now that's sad. When you have a situation in your life that you've already decided, this is so bad, I cannot forgive. And I'm going to help you get over that today. 
Because unforgiveness is a stumbling block that will ruin you. Now, here's what you can do. If somebody offends you, lest, just so this doesn't become a stumbling block in life, you can rebuke them. Now, don't get any ideas. You can rebuke and do it softly. Do it caringly. Number two, if he repents, you can forgive him. As a matter of fact, you have to forgive. Or her, as the case may be. Number three, if this person repeatedly offends you and keeps asking for forgiveness, you must continue to forgive. Jesus is speaking to his followers who were Jewish people. They had been taught in their religion and had been taught for centuries by the rabbis. There was a limitation to forgiveness. You could forgive maybe three times, but after that, you're no longer obligated to continue to forgive. Or some say as, as many as seven times. And there are various opinions on that from the scholars, but the one point that remains constant in this is that they did teach there's a limit to how much you have to forgive. And when that's over, you don't have to forgive them anymore. And Jesus comes up with this new plan that says as many times as they ask forgiveness... You have to forgive them as many times as they repent. Now, one of my first questions whenever I was studying this was, well, when they come back, if they're genuine in the repentance, we must forgive them. And then I even put it in my notes. And then I went and took it back out of my notes because that's not what Jesus said. See, your forgiveness of them has nothing to do with the sincerity of their apology or the repentance, because forgiveness has everything to do with your own spiritual health. So you can't say, well, that was not a genuine repentance. They're not really sorry. I don't have to forgive them. Now, if you choose to go down that path, you're going to carry unforgiveness. And it's like you drinking poison and hoping they get sick. It doesn't hurt them whatsoever because you don't forgive them. It's killing you. It's a stumbling block. It will destroy your Christianity. Something else you can do is you can remove yourself from that situation. And you always have to keep that option. I can forgive somebody who every time I'm around them, they offend me terribly. Or they're... they're physically abusive to me. I, I can forgive them. But there's nothing in Scripture says that you are obligated to have to hang around them. You can avoid situations that are poisonous situations. But here's what you cannot do. You cannot continue to walk in unforgiveness. You cannot harbor resentment. Because unforgiveness is a slow suffocation. It is a creeping paralysis. It's a deadly disease that you choose to inject yourself with. It's exacting revenge on yourself for the wrongs that have been done by somebody else. It's self-punishment for somebody else's crime. Unforgiveness is bondage. It's the equivalent of locking yourself in jail while they go free. 
putting yourself in chains and handcuffs and selling yourself into total slavery. And with those things considered, it makes no sense to walk in unforgiveness. Yet we are so offended by what somebody has done. There is a chance, a good chance, with the culture, the society we are living in today and have for many decades, there's a good chance there's some of you here that have been so hurt in your past by an adult or by a friend. There's a possibility that there are some of you here who have been abused, physically abused, sexually abused. And it's pain that goes deeper than you can even explain or express. And perhaps you have chosen because of your past hurts to hold a grudge against that person and even the thought of them in your mind and even the mention of your name, you bristle. And when we begin to talk about forgiveness, your first reaction is, I will never forgive what they did. They have harmed me. They have changed my entire life. They have left scars that will never go away. Therefore, I choose not to forgive. Now, I understand the pain. What you don't understand is you are continuing in unnecessary pain when you say, I choose not to forgive. You say, but they've never apologized. That doesn't make any difference. Do you want to be free? Do you want to be whole? You want to start healing up from what has happened? You have to take care of your business whether they ever do or not. Forgiveness is a choice. It's not a feeling. And you can say today, I forgive that person for what they did to me, and you wake up tomorrow and you don't feel any better about them. And you don't feel a whole lot better about life. And you say, well, that didn't do any good. I forgave and I still feel rotten. Isn't forgiveness supposed to be a feeling? No. Forgiveness is a choice. And every day that you wake up, that you remember what was done to you, you have but one responsibility. And that is to say, with God's help, I choose to forgive this person because I will not live in that prison for the rest of my life. You have not excused their behavior. You have merely set yourself free. Number three. Beware of the stumbling block of inadequate faith. Now, if you're using your Bibles as an outline, this next couple of scriptures, 5 and 6, talks about seemingly a different subject matter. We've gone from stumbling blocks to the issue of forgiveness, now to the issue of inadequate faith. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The first thing that jumps out at us at this point is the basic concept, we need God. These disciples following Jesus cried out, we're inadequate. We need you. Increase our faith. The disciples are almost overwhelmed. First of all, they wonder how they're ever going to find the strength of character to do what Christ has commanded them to do. They cannot fathom making it all the way through life without stumbling 
or without being a stumbling block for somebody else. That's a huge order. If Jesus were come to me and say, I don't want you to ever stumble again, and I don't want you to ever offend anybody else again, I would go, whoa, I won't make it this week, much less the rest of my life. Can you imagine how the disciples are overwhelmed at this point by what Jesus is expecting them to do? The very thought of having to constantly tread so cautiously frustrates and angers them. And then to think that if they did happen to cause another one to stumble, how harshly they were going to be judged. They just can't get their, their, their head around that. And then, then they can't comprehend, they can't process forgiveness. These two things have just knocked it out of the park. Don't stumble, don't be a stumbling block, forgive everybody regardless. And the only thing they can say is, wow, we're going to need a whole bunch more faith than we've got right now. Increase our faith, Lord. It's a dangerous thing that we should never come to the point of realizing our own incapability and reaching out for God. If we never come to the point of surrender, that's a danger zone. As long as any person continues to believe in their own self-sufficiency, you're in a danger zone. You can't handle it yourself. We can think about fixing our own problems, curing our own faults, going to counselors and getting into programs and reading books for self-improvement. But when it's all said and done without God, you just won't accomplish anything. You need God. Every man and woman needs God. And we are absolutely powerless to fix ourselves. Jesus' response to this is very important. They said, as they assessed their situation, we know how to fix this, though. Give us more faith. And Jesus responded to them by saying, it's not the quantity, it's the quality. In other words, you've got enough faith, but it's not of the vitality and the strength and the quality it needs to be. So why should I give you more if you're not taking care of what faith you have, if you're not nurturing it? And he exemplifies this by saying, if you only had faith of the grain of a mustard seed, of the right kind of faith, of quality faith, you don't need more faith. Just the smallest measure of faith, if it's pure faith, if it's holy faith, if it's righteous faith, that's enough to pluck up trees and cast them into the sea. Pluck up mountains. You need quality faith. That's the way it is with us a lot of times. We write our own prescriptions for God to fill. We think we've got it all figured out. And we come to God and say, God, if you'll just do this, I can handle the rest of it. And are you surprised or shocked that God often comes back and scraps your plans and say, that's no good? Do it my way. You need a richer, deeper faith. In other words, the faith you have just needs to be strengthened. Number four, beware of the stumbling block of merited favor. Verses 7 through 10. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come in immediately and sit down to eat. 
But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat, properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things that were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves and we have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, Jesus has not broken his chain of thought from verse 1 to this point. There is still a thread running through this that ties everything together. What an interesting parallel that Jesus uses. They understood it because in their days they were acquainted with bond servants. Now, we're not talking about the slavery like human trafficking that we're so aware of in our culture. We're talking about bond slaves that they were indebted to somebody and they worked their debt off. And they made an agreement with somebody to say, I will work for you until my debt is paid. It's a totally different uh, system than what we think of when we think of slavery. And it's interesting for you to understand that because critics of the Bible want to point out things like this and say, well, you believe in a Bible that still talks about slavery and Jesus promoted slavery. That's not, that's not at all it. That's not it. So in this system of paying off your debt to somebody, there were certain things that the servant was required to do. The servant didn't come in from the field and sit down and take care of his own needs first. The servant came in and, like a butler, like a, a domestic, would come in and take care of the master's needs first, make sure that, that the, the food was on the table, they were fed, everything was taken care of, and after that was completed, then the servant could eat. And this passage speaks to us about two things, priorities. Number one, we have to have our priorities straight. So with that in mind, and it's a side point, it's not the major point here, but it's a point that must not be ignored either. We would ask this question, what mother tending to a sick child in the middle of this sickness packs up and goes on a vacation for two weeks? You don't do that because you know your priorities. What doctor performing a critical, life-saving surgery gets in the middle of this surgery and then takes a break and orders Chinese? I'll finish when I'm done. I'm just hungry all of a sudden. But the surgeon continues right on through the process because this is desperate. You've got to stick to what's important here. Or a firefighter taking a break in the middle of fighting a house fire, to go check his email and play some internet games. That's not the priority right now. When there are pressing duties to perform, we stick to the task at hand until we are finished. That's focus. That's responsibility. That's understanding our priorities. But more important than that point, and that is that when you perform your duty, you are not entitled to special favor. And that's the main point Jesus is making here. He said, if this servant comes in and does what he's supposed to do or she is supposed to do and takes care of the master's needs first and then after all that's taken care of, they sit down to eat, does that master go and tell that servant, I am so excited that you have done your job. 
No. Jesus said, you don't commend them for doing what was expected of them to do. Now, in order for us to make this application, we have to understand that our duty to God does not entitle us to special favor from God. So the question would be, what is our duty for which we sometimes expect special favor, but under no circumstances do we deserve it? And this is where we find this passage connected to all the other verses. Because we go back to duty. Jesus said, basically, it is your duty to be prepared not to be tripped up by stumbling blocks. That's your duty. It is your duty to care enough about other people that you don't exercise your Christian liberties and cause their fall and their failure. That's your duty. You need to do that. He tells him it's your duty not to harbor forgiveness. You're expected to do that. You must forgive. He's not making that a choice, an option. He says you must do this. It is your duty to make sure that your faith is adequate. You've been given faith. God gave you faith. But your faith may be inadequate because you haven't tended to it with spiritual things. It's your duty to make sure the measure of faith that you have been given is of the quality that God expects it to be. And Jesus says, be faithful. Live so as not to offend others. Live in preparation so as not to trip up yourself. Take care of your faith, the care and feeding of your faith. And lest any one of us or any of his disciples see this as being almost insurmountable, yet they give it their best shot. And they come back one day and they say, you know what? I had an opportunity to walk in my Christian liberties the other day, and I suddenly realized that I could be an offense to somebody, and I decided not to do that. And Lord, aren't you just as proud of me as you can be? Don't you love me more now than you did last week? Lord, there's a person in my life that I have been struggling with, and I can't get them out of my life, I can't get them out of my mind, and I can't forgive them. But I finally had a breakthrough, and God... I am walking in forgiveness today. I'm pretty special. And the point Jesus is making is, no, you're expected to do that. And your response should not be going to God and saying, look what I have done. Because God is saying you were supposed to be doing that all along. Your response to God is supposed to be, I'm an unprofitable servant. I'm an unworthy slave. And all I can do for you is what you expect me to do. Because when we get this attitude that we are earning God's favor somehow by the things that we are doing, it is a danger zone. It is a stumbling block. You cannot earn His grace. His grace is freely given. You cannot earn His favor. Now you're doing your duty. 
Paul said in the 12th chapter of Romans, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your, everybody say it, reasonable service. Reasonable service. Did you see what Paul said reasonable service was? Total sacrifice, he said, is reasonable service. How is it we're impressing God? I think most of us have got a lot of work to do just to come to the point of doing what we should have been doing all along. And when we finally get to that point where we think we're pretty special, remember we're unprofitable servants. We're just doing reasonable service for him. And the very best we can do is do our duty and then say very honestly, I'm an unprofitable servant. doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. But it means that you're not earning your way with God. Let's perform a reasonable service to God. Bow your heads.